Hi, I'm Dave Dawson. My pen name is Dave Philpot, and I'm half of the D&D Philpot who wrote Dear Mr. Popstar, inviting you to enjoy and love the Follow Your Dreams podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Chris O'Dell, who worked for the Beatles' Apple Records and was also one of Rock's first female tour managers. She was in the studio when the Beatles recorded the White Album, Abbey Road, and Let It Be. And she sang in the chorus for Hey Jude. How about that? And Chris was at that historic rooftop concert by the Beatles in January 1969, their last live appearance. She later worked for Derek and the Dominoes, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, and Santana. And most famously, perhaps, she was the inspiration for George Harrison's song, Miss Odell, the B-side to Give Me Love, his number one single from 1973. And she's written a memoir, about all of this. And as you know, in every episode, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I have chosen my reimagined version of a Beatles song, I Want to Be Your Man, which I renamed I Want to Be Your Girl because I had a female singer. But this title encapsulates Chris's career because she was the Beatles girl. So I thought it fit. So Chris O'Dell, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you so much, Robert. It's a pleasure to have you here. Okay, the first thing I have to ask is, when I scheduled this interview, I was sure that you must have been English, but you either don't have a British accent, or you've got the best American accent I've ever heard from a British person. So which one is it? I've worked hard on that American accent. No, actually, I am American. Born, raised, bred, everything American. All right. So I got to ask the question, how'd you get over there to England? I went to LA. I grew up in Tucson, and I had to get away from Tucson back then, about 67 or something. And I got a job in a record company, coincidentally, and met Derek Taylor, who was about to go back and work for the Beatles and Apple. He had been their PR guy during all the early years. And he suggested I come there. So I did. <laughs> Not immediately. I, I was a little, people just didn't fly around like that then. So it took a while for me to be convinced to do it. But then I did. And that's how I ended up at Apple. Uh, was this when Apple was just being formed? Was that the time frame that we're talking about? Exactly. I went in 68, May of 68. So it wasn't even on Savile Row yet. We were still on Wigmore Street. And um, oh, it was 
pretty amazing back then. In London, suddenly surrounded by the Beatles. That was pretty cool. I mean, it was actually, I don't even want to, I, I, I don't want to not say that I was actually in awe of myself. <laughs> so to speak. But how'd you do this? This is good. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. You, growing up in Tucson, you meet Derek Taylor, who was their PR guy. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, you're working for Apple Records. How many people were working at Apple Records at that time? There must be only a handful. Yeah, it wasn't that many. A lot of the ladies, the secretaries came from NEMS. A few came actually from Liverpool. And there were only two Americans, Richard DeLello and myself. So it was a handful. It wasn't very many at all. You get the impression that it was chaotic at Apple Records. Was it or not? No, it didn't seem chaotic to me. But then that was part of the fun. (laughs) So it was hard to, there was, every day was like, you never knew what was going to happen. So some people might call that chaotic. To us, it was just what was happening. You know, you never knew. First of all, you didn't know which Beatle was going to show up. And then you weren't sure what other star would show up or wanting to meet the Beatles. So it was it was definitely the hub of the world at that time in those days, 68, 69. Sure, you're right. All right. Which was the first Beatle that you met? That would have been John. All right. Tell me your impressions. Well, John was sitting in the reception room with Yoko the day that I arrived. I'm not immediately, but then later. And he came into the office. But prior to that, I was in Derek's office and he said, oh, I think that's Paul next door. And I was like, whoa, Paul next door, because he was the one I liked, Paul. And Derek went over and and came back a little later and I thought he was coming back with Paul. I braced myself. My back was to the door. And when Derek got in front of me, it was actually John. <laughs> so was I disappointed? Not really. <laughs> Were you one of the fans like the girls that, you know, when, when the group was on the Ed Sullivan show, they were screaming and everything. Did you scream after the Beatles? No, I didn't scream. I didn't scream. I imagined meeting them. I imagine going to Liverpool and actually getting to know them. That's where I went with it. My imagination went crazy. I wasn't going to just sit and scream in the audience. (laughs) But do you realize how many millions of girls probably would envy exactly what happened to you, that you went and you worked for them at that point at the apex of their career? Quite a remarkable position. It was, but I didn't you know, I don't think I really totally got it then. It was just part of my experience, a great experience, but I didn't really get the true value of it. There was an article that came out, oh, a couple of years later in Girl Scout magazine that said I was living the life of millions of girls. And I went, oh, yeah, I guess I would be, wouldn't I? That makes sense. This was in Girl Scout magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was supposed to be in Sunday Parade. That was what Derek told me. He said, oh, it'll be in Sunday Parade. And it turned out in Girl Scout magazine. (laughs) That's as close as I got to the Girl Scouts. And um, actually, 
today I have much more a respect for that, for the position that I found myself in. Well, what exactly was your position? What was your title there? Well, I eventually became the personal assistant to Peter Asher. That was actually my official job during probably almost all the time that I worked until at Apple until he quit. And then I became assistant. What was I doing? Marketing with Tony Bramwell, <laughs> which was basically don't let anyone hear these records before they come out. <laughs> so um, that was an easy job. But mostly it was Peter Asher. He's the one who came to me and said, I'd like you to be my assistant. And I said, great, because at that point, I was just filling in wherever I could. Well, maybe you know that I just had Peter on the show. In fact, he was together with Jeremy Clyde, Chad and Jeremy. And uh, Peter discussed a little bit of what it was like working at Apple and how he signed James Taylor. So you must have met James Taylor right at the beginning as well. Right at the beginning, within the fourth day, Derek called him up and asked him if he would. It was the day that the um, fashion show, the Apple Boutique on Kings Road, the men's shop, on they had the fashion show. And then afterwards, Derek said, I don't want you to be alone. So he said, I'm going to get someone to come and visit you and sort of hang out with you tonight. And he said, it's an American guy. And I went, I don't want to know an American guy. <laughs> I want an English guy. But anyway, he called James. So James came over to my hotel that day. And um, that's how I got to know James. He was working on Carolina on my mind at that time in my bathroom. Isn't that remarkable? It's such an <laughs> early stage of the world. And it became such an enormous song. All right. I want to hear about your time in the studio with them. You know, as I said in the introduction, you were in the studio when they recorded the White Album and Abbey Road and Let It Be. How did that come about? And tell me your impressions of being in the studio with them. Um, well, the first time that I was there was kind of an accident because I had asked Paul if I could come. And he said, oh, sure, because that's what Paul was going to say. Of course. Talk to Mal because Mal was the gatekeeper. Little did I know. But fortunately, when I went to Abbey Road, Pete Shotton showed up, John Lennon's friend, who'd been in the Quarrymen, and he he took me into the studio. So that was the first time. It was not uh, normal to, for people to be going into the studio. My American perseverance won out on that one. And then once they kind of got used to me around, then I went over a few times. Um, Trident Studios, where they did Hey Jude, was actually my job was booking all of our artists into Trident Studios, not Abbey Road, but Trident. And they wanted to, to do some sessions in Trident. So I I booked them in and Hey Jude happened to be one of it. They were putting on uh, the orchestra and some background vocals. And that's when Paul came up and said, come on downstairs, I need voices for the chorus. And uh, so I did. I sang on the chorus of Hey Jude. And yeah, that was, it was just, I think because I was in the studio a lot, because I actually booked the studio. Plus, Robert, I had nothing else to do. I had no life. <laughs> My whole life was centered on Apple. So it wasn't like, oh, well, I'm going out with friends tonight. I didn't have it. All my friends were there. It was a totally 
monocentric life. You're immersed. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. It's finally spring here in the United States. So I'm playing my song, Spring Dance, underneath this message. Spring is a time for renewal and growth. And I've just begun the third year of this podcast. It's been quite a ride so far. Over 170 episodes, more than 800,000 downloads, ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts with listeners in 200 countries. My guests have included famous musicians, actors, directors, broadcasters, corporate CEOs, and others. My goal with each is to have fun and entertain you, the audience. And of course, to inspire you to follow and succeed at your dream. As a professional musician with a dozen highly acclaimed albums and millions of video views and streams, I infuse my music into each episode, and the podcast has allowed me to introduce my music to a worldwide audience. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs, and also please sign up for our weekly emails which keep you up to date on everything. The links are in the show notes to each episode. And also, please check out our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you all for listening and keep on rocking. All right, go back to the Hey Jude thing. I want to hear about that because for anybody who hasn't seen it, there is a video that goes along with, you know, the final version of Hey Jude. It's got all these celebrities and and a big audience. So you were in that, am I correct? No, I was not. I was in Ireland getting my work permit at that time. I was in the studio when they recorded it at Trident and they didn't record it that day that's on the video. I see. That was they recorded that thing, but it wasn't the actual recording of Hey Jude. And so I was there was there were only like some of the orchestra and, you know, the, whoever was there pretty much sang on the chorus. So I happened to be there. So Paul just kind of assembled whoever happened to be around to do the chorus. Oh, yeah, it was crazy. He came up to the control room to talk to George Martin and I was sitting in front of the control board and he said, oh, Chris, come here, I need you. <laughs> and I thought, well, my first thing is I don't sing. And I didn't think I had a voice or could carry a tune. So it was a little overwhelming to think that I was going to sing on this Beatle chorus. But Paul was so enthusiastic about it that after a while, you just couldn't help it. And it's very catchy. Think about it. This is maybe one of the greatest songs ever written. It was probably their most famous song of all. And you're in it. Yeah. There I am. You get royalties of any kind from <laughs> yeah, this? Yeah, right. No, unfortunately. <laughs> that, that, good question. And honestly, we should talk to Paul about that. <laughs> Where are my royalties? <laughs> you know, after this was all over, and I, I, I don't want to skip that far, but 
Did you remain in contact with any of the guys? Well, I became very, very good friends with George and Patty. I lived at Friar Park during the time I worked at Apple. And so Patty and I are still friends, actually. We still are in touch. George and Patty were, I was everywhere with them, you know. So I spent a lot of, they were kind of my best friends at that point. And then later Ringo and I got to know each other better and Maureen. And um, and I stayed friends with Ringo pretty much up until maybe 10 years ago. Now I don't really have too much contact with him. But yeah, I, Ringo and George were two of the two of them that I stayed close to. Then, of course, when May Pang was with John in L.A., I was around. And so then I got to know John better than I had at Apple. Apple was fine. You got to know them, but you but it became much more a social relationship after I left Apple. Well, there came a time at Apple where things went bad within the group. Did you experience any of that? Did you see any of that? I heard about it. I mean, when they were, but you always heard about it. Like, you know, there was a time when I remember people saying, oh, John quit the band. <laughs> And that went for a couple of days and then it seemed to get sorted out. Or George, you know, when at, at, at the studios, Twickenham, George quit the band. We heard that stuff, but I think in a way, so we knew that, I think what we were more aware of at Apple at that point was the business thing going on with Alan Klein and Paul's father-in-law. That we kind of were more aware of than, than the musicians, than the Beatles having their problems. That just kind of, came as rumors, more or less, at that time. It was certainly a remarkable era that you were there. Tell us a little bit more about the George Harrison thing and how he came to write this song that is named after you. I'm the only one down here who's got nothing to say about the war or the rights that keeps going astray on its way to Bombay. I was thinking about it before we did this interview. How many women had a song named after them by the Beatles or by any of the you know individual Beatles? I could only think of Eleanor Rigby, Michelle, Lovely Rita, and Miss Odell. And I don't even know if they were real people. But they probably weren't, but you are. I know, but a lot of people thought I wasn't a real people too. Um, actually, yeah, what a what a significant thing to happen in your life, right? How did that come about? Did George tell you he was writing a song about you? No, he was in LA um and he kept calling me and asking me to come out and see him. And I was you know, I was, well, I don't even remember what I was doing. I think I was still working for Peter Asher. I can't remember. So I don't know. I just didn't like a lot of the people that were hanging around George when he was in LA. So I just thought, and Patty wasn't there. So I thought, yeah, I'll go sometime. And eventually he called me and said, are you avoiding me? And I wouldn't know. I'll come out. So I went out that particular day and we he played he said oh i've got something for you 
and he went to the other room, got his guitar and came out and he said, I'm going to make you famous. And I thought, I don't, I had no clue what that meant. And he played it for me. And I thought it was really sweet. I mean, you know, I knew it was about Bangladesh. (laughs) Let's face it. It was a lot about that, but um, but nevertheless, I was like, I left there and I'm like, whoa, that is so cool. And then, and he played it for me a few times after that. When Patty came, he played it one night. We were sitting around and and I asked her, how did you feel about it? Because I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how would she feel about George writing a song about an, her friend. And she thought it was wonderful. And then the recording happened. And of course, what happened is he kept singing the wrong lyrics. Why is that? I think he sings about the rice rolling up into the door, his doorstep, up into. <laughs> I have no idea. They recorded it, I think, in London, and he came back to L.A. again and played it to me with the laughing version. So I have both versions, but they liked the laughing version. And Capitol Records actually told him he should put that out as the A side. Instead really? of give give me love, <laughs> because it made him seem more approachable, more real. Well, you didn't make the A side, but the fact that you were on the B side, even of a George Harrison single that went to number one. I mean, that's quite remarkable. Yeah, and then Olivia, bless her heart, they put it. I think it was Olivia or Olivia and George put it on one of the albums later. Fantastic, fantastic. So I want to talk about your post-Beatles career because you also worked with so many others that we mentioned up front. And I'm talking about Derek and the Dominoes and the Stones and Dylan. Tell us about your experiences there. Well, after Apple um, and, uh, you know, the time came when everybody basically was let go. So my day finally came and I knew Eric really well. I'd been to his house a number of times and he had the dominoes come in. So I helped them find a flat in London where they could stay. And I actually stayed there too. And then they went away on tour to Florida. And I went to, he said, would you stay at my house? So I did. And I'll tell you something. I painted his kitchen orange and yellow. It would not surprise me if he never spoke to me again. I don't know what happened. So anyway, then from there, I went to, to L.A. to work with Peter Asher. I did, the only thing I did with the Dominoes was help them out around their flat in London and clean up their messes. Let me put it that way. And then I went to L.A. I was working for Peter, who is managing James and working with Linda Ronstadt and Carol King and, and many people like that. And I got a call asking me if I wanted to work for the Stones, that there was a position open with Marshall Chess. So I got, I had met Mick. I knew Mick fairly well from London. So I thought, yeah, okay, why not? So I went to work for them for years, their personal assistant, and then went on tour in 72 with them, which was my first tour. That was one heck of a tour to start with. Was that the Get Your Yaya's Out tour? Was that the no, one? No, this was Exile on Main Street. Okay. So during the whole time I worked for them, they were doing Exile. They were recording what they had to do in L.A. on Exile on Main Street. They started in France, but they did the finishing in L.A. So 
that was an interesting year. And then after I recuperated, <laughs> I went to work for a travel agent that did rock and roll tours, which there was only one at that time. And just having set them up and helping to, to sort of devise these amazing itineraries, Barry Emhoff, who worked with Bill Graham, asked me if I would come and work on the Crosby, Stills, Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young reunion tour in 1974. And so that was my first tour as a tour manager. And then I did a couple other tours with the, the Bill Graham organization, um, George Harrison's tour, uh, what, Bob Dill, uh, well, Rolling Thunder Review. I worked with Bob Dylan on that, but that was not part of Bill Graham. That was his partner, Barry Imhoff. I did the Rolling Thunder Review, both, both of them, and um, Santana, Earth, Wind, and Fire in Europe. And then I moved back to Europe in 79. I moved to Germany. And there I worked with a promoter who uh, was also my boyfriend. And I learned German and went out with all the groups he brought over, like Fleetwood Mac, Genesis, Led Zeppelin, pretty much everybody, actually. <laughs> and then I had had my fill. And I no longer, so I, I think I was probably one of the women, first women to operate on that large a scale with tours. I was the only woman for the first couple tours. And then eventually my friend Ava Magna be, got in and was doing accounting. So it was a pretty different time back then. And what you have just described in the last five minutes or so, we could have 20 different episodes <laughs> just about these different tours and the people that you were working with. I mean, quite remarkable. You were there. You were like the zealot of the rock era. You, you were involved with everybody. I think I've been called the, um, what was his name? Oh, I can't even think of his name now. Oh, the Gump. Oh, Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah. The Forrest Gump of rock and roll. <laughs> I mean, it's fantastic, really, that you had such a front row seat for one of the most exciting eras, I mean, starting with the Beatles and then all the other bands and individuals that you worked with, really quite remarkable. And then you decided that's it? You wanted out of the whole thing? Yeah, it was sometime in like in in Germany around 84, 83, 84. And I just, I was working with a band called Echo and the Bunnymen. And I thought, who are these people? Although younger, a younger generation knows of them. And um, I was, they, one of the guys came up and he said, can you get me a towel? And I went, get your own towel. I'm done. I'm done. I'm not getting anybody's towel anymore. And because uh, that's what it is. I mean, my, the tour managing was being, I call it the most codependent job that ever existed, <laughs> except for maybe nursing. So um, I just been, I, that's it. And I went to England and eventually, and then married an English uh, gentleman and kind of, I still stayed in the, in the music business socially, but, you know, with all my friends and everything, but not working anymore until 2004 when Linda Ronstadt asked me to go on tour with her. <laughs> and I thought I was getting my degree my master's degree in counseling and I hadn't been awarded it yet. So I thought, yeah, might as well. Well, you have had one heck of a fascinating career and experience <laughs> and you're still smiling after all of this. So good for you. Yeah, absolutely. 
We have been speaking here with Chris O'Dell, who went from the Beatles to basically every other rock star and rock group in the world. It's been a fascinating experience to hear from you. And I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thank you so much, Robert. I really enjoyed it. Let's do it again. You bet. We've got so many other times to talk about here. And now we're going to listen to that song that started off the episode. It's my reimagined version of a Beatles song called I Want to Be Your Man. And it's called I Want to Be Your Girl. I want to thank you so much for listening. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.